The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency picked a systems integrator for a computer vision project. The integrator, CACI, started to develop a proprietary function that a commercial company already offered. You can guess what happened. Everyone ended up in court. For the details on a case underscoring the legal preference for commercial products, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke to Haynes Boone's procurement attorney, Zach Prince. All right, Zach, walk us through this because it has to do with market research. It has to do with commercial preference and all of these kind of longstanding issues. Sure, Tom. It is complicated. So by statute, Congress has established a firm preference for commercial products and services. Agency heads are required when structuring procurements to set requirements so that they can have commercial products and services solutions, or at least non-developmental solutions. And it goes further to require the agencies to instruct primes going further down to the supply chain to incorporate commercial products and services as frequently as possible. In this case, NGA failed to do that. What was NGA trying to acquire here? So the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or the MAPS agency, as a lot of folks still know them as, obtains and analyzes a huge volume of images and other geospatial information. And then they use analytical tools to process that volume of data in order to obtain useful intelligence. And to do that, they use a system they call computer vision, which is a form of AI that trains and uses computers to interpret the visual world. So in this case, NGA was issuing a solicitation for an IDIQ contract reference to Sapphire. It had two components. It had a huge data repository to store and disseminate the geospatial intelligence and a solution to integrate a computer vision system to enhance the agency's ability to produce, review, and classify the intelligence from all these images. So they needed the application and the storage as one deal. That's right. And they didn't want to bifurcate this into storage and the actual system. So they chose CACI, which proved it could do both, correct? That's right. CACI was able to do both. Technically, the solicitation allowed for either development or provision of an existing vision system. Uh, CACI chose the development option. All right. So that sounds like custom development. Then there was this company called Percipient, which said, well, it could do the image capture part of it and the image processing part of it, but not the storage. So how did they get to be a party to this whole acquisition snafu? So Percipient has a computer vision software called Mirage. It's an open architecture software that, in their view, would have fulfilled NGA's needs, which they told NGA about very early on. NGA told them to go talk to CACI, who at first said, sorry, it's too late. NGA said, wait, wait, maybe it's not too late. We're still evaluating whether we even need a development solution. Maybe we're just going to use our existing computer vision system. But ultimately, Percipient had to hear from CACI at a trade show that CACI had already been developing this new computer vision program. So NGA tried to stall them from filing a protest told them to lay off the litigation and we'll think about your software, but then told CACI to go ahead anyway and develop something that would do functionally the same thing. That in itself doesn't sound quite kosher to say, drop your lawsuit and we'll consider buying from you. Can an agency actually say that? Well, they, they, I mean, they did said say it, it, but are they allowed to say it? I guess I meant the court suggests that no, but the decision here is an, on a motion to dismiss, so we don't have anything on the merits yet. Well, let's but, back up a step. So Percipient went to the Court of Federal Claims after this incident. That's right. So NGA did some evaluation of Mirage 
but it was clear to Percipient that they weren't taking it seriously. They were evaluating it as a different type of software than it actually is. And from Percipient's logs of the use of Mirage, the agency really hadn't gone in and done anything with it. So once it became clear that the agency was not going to be doing anything on its own to buy the software, they brought this protest. All right. We're speaking with Haynes Boone procurement attorney, Zach Prince. And what did the court say and decide? So as soon as the protest was filed, the agency and CACI moved to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction and for lack of standing and on timeliness grounds. Because remember, this is two years after the agency originally awarded the IDIQ to CACI, quite a while. And the court found that there was standing and there was jurisdiction because of the commercial item preference that's contained in statute. And this is really following on the heels of the Federal Circuit's Palantir decision from 2018, where they reprimanded the Army for failing to conduct market research into a commercial product that would have satisfied their needs. Instead, the Army in that case went out and procured a developmental software. So in awarding the original contract to CACI, they weren't really buying the total solution that they had put in the solicitation either because CACI had to start coding this application, which might have existed commercially to begin with. So the the solicitation permitted that as a solution, which is why the court said, actually, it wouldn't have been timely for percipient to protest the solicitation. Because solicitation could have allowed for a commercial product Got as it. a solution. And so th- there are some very complicated and interesting jurisdictional and timeliness issues here, which I'm not going to go too far down the law nerd angle. But it is a case really worth watching because commercial product providers frequently want their solutions to be part of a government procurement. They don't want a development solution, but they also frequently can't provide the full gamut of services an agency needs. But that isn't enough to exclude them. The court here certainly considered the possibility that the agency might be required to direct CACI to include Mirage as the solution for the computer vision. But it hasn't made that decision yet. No, it hasn't. So the briefings on the merits are going to take some time. I would strongly suspect there'll be an appeal. So this will be something to watch for a while yet. And I guess maybe the other lesson here so far is that agencies should not take the requirement to do market research too lightly, especially in a burgeoning field with artificial intelligence and all kinds of imaging applications being developed. And the NGA itself is a agency always professing to want to use commercial imagery and commercial solutions. That's kind of one of their mantras. And so that early piece of the market research cannot be ignored or taken lightly. That's right. And I think a lot of agencies before 2018 were taking it fairly lightly because it didn't seem like there was any legal teeth to the commercial product preference. But the Federal Circuit was clear that, in fact, that statute creates an enforceable right. And the court here is just continuing on the heels of that decision. And there's also the issue that CACI is a known quantity. It's been around many, many, many years. And has performed successfully for lots of agencies. I mean, it's not like they're a newcomer here. So that mitigates in favor of why the NGA would want to play it safe, maybe. Maybe, but anytime you're developing a software solution, it's going to be expensive and have risks. And certainly the agency knows that. It might be the case that Mirage doesn't do what the agency needs, but they still have to do that evaluation, which they still have failed to do. And also, the company did not protest to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, but rather to the Court of Federal Claims. Any significance there? 
So they couldn't have gone to the Armed Services Board because it's a bid protest. They might have gone to GAO, but because of GAO's strict timeliness rules, there's no question that this would have been untimely at GAO. Well, they had lawyers that knew what they were doing anyway in terms of the venue for a protest. That's sometimes as crucial as the merits, isn't it? It is. And the timeliness issues at the court are going to get very complicated, particularly in the heels of this decision, because the court here, it's commonly understood that at GAO, you have these very strict five, 10 day rules for when you can bring a protest. At the court, there's this equitable thing called latches that you can't bring a stale claim. But what that means has always been a little bit vague, but it's allowed flexibility. The court here said, actually, the concept of latches is inapplicable in a bid protest based on a recent Supreme Court decision. I don't know about that holding. The Federal Circuit seems to have already rejected that holding in a case last year. So we'll see where that goes. But that would totally upset some of the basic rules about bid protests. That's Zach Prince, a partner at the law firm Haynes Boone, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you go with your commercial device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the 
property, a white woman would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? 
in 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.